economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lou Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gordney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institute and the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. And we also have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, well, I can't tell you how honored we are today to have Dr. Jim Gortney with us. So uh, if you're a regular listener, you know that our institute is called the Gortney Institute, and it's because of this man that we have done that. And his fabulous work around the world. Um, he's uh, written a, a book for the average Joe called Common Sense Economics that uh, has been out for a number of years and educating both young and old minds alike. And uh, he is the primary author of our textbook that we use here at Ottawa University. It's in its 17th edition. So that's been out for a number of years as well, uh, touching a lot of people in principles of micro and macroeconomics classes around the world. And then uh, he's probably best known for, at least I guess in our circles, for being the lead um, researcher on the Economic Freedom Index, which is a, a number that basically reflects how easy it is to do business around the world. And um, with that, some of the benefits that come from uh, more economic freedom being in a particular country, we see that they have uh, longer life expectancy, lower infant mortality rates, less poverty, so a lot of better access to drinking water. So a lot of the social outcomes that we desire in society tend, out, tend to be heavily correlated with the amount of economic freedom. And uh, he worked with one of my favorite economists on that project as well, um, Dr. Milton Friedman. And so I just feel real special knowing that I'm one degree of separation away from Friedman, uh, is what I like to say. So, uh, Jim, welcome to our podcast once again. This is not your first time on our podcast, for that matter, and it's great to have you on campus here. It's great to be on campus, and uh, you know, reflecting upon the education that I got here uh, uh, sixty years ago, graduated in uh, 1962, had the opportunity to study under both Wayne Angel and Sherwin Snyder, and I really feel like I got a, a fantastic education. I went on to the University of Washington, and at University of Washington, we had a lot of people from leading schools around the country who, in terms of their undergraduate degree, and it was initially a little bit intimidating to think, man, I just come from this little uh, uh, school in Kansas, Ottawa University, but I found out that actually my education was as good or better than many of the, those who went to uh, very prestigious kinds of universities. So uh, uh, Ottawa was a great place to get an education in, at uh, that time. And I think it's a great place to get an education today that uh, we're very fortunate in the Department of Economics at Ottawa to have uh, uh, both Russ McCullough and Peter Jacobson and and others as well, but uh, who are uh, young, highly respected, uh, enthusiastic, and great teachers and great educators. And one of the advantages of a school like Ottawa is you really do have interaction with faculty members. Students today have interaction with you guys, 
And I would, had the opportunity to have a lot of interaction with uh, Dr. Angel and Dr. Snyder back yeah. in my era. Yeah. So it's wonderful to be back on campus. Okay, great. It's great yeah. to have you. Yeah, and I'm excited. This is the first time I've been in a podcast with Jim. You all did. Oh, that's right. That was before you yeah, joined when, us. When yeah. Levi was here with Justin. Yeah, so that's right. my first time. But I've listened to that podcast. One of the first ones I listened yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. That so. was a while back. That's right. Well, with all the craziness going on in the world with inflation and wars, and uh, now here we are on the brink of midterm elections, um, we thought we'd want to just get your general opening comments on uh, where we're at and where you think we're going. Well, I think uh, obviously where we're at is we have uh, considerable uh, economic uh, instability and particularly a problem with inflation. And it really is no mystery, despite what, uh, if you kind of listen to the popular media, you might get the idea that this inflation is uh, kind of a, some type of virus. It just happens so <laughs> often or something of that sort. But really, that's not the case, <laughs> that this inflation uh, is entirely caused by the government spending policies of uh, the federal government that were financed by the Federal Reserve. That essentially what happened in 2020 and uh, 2021 is we had three huge increase in government expenditures. And you'll note I said increase in government expenditures. Uh, one of them uh, in March of uh, 2020, that was $2.7 trillion. Another in, in uh, the latter part, December of 2020, that was $900 billion. And then finally, in March of uh uh, 2021, a government expenditure package of uh, 1.9 trillion. Now, if you sum those numbers up, they come to 5.5 trillion dollars, <laughs> and that's a lot of money. To give you an idea about how much money that is, that is actually that increase is uh, greater than the size of, uh, and that was over about a what a 15 month period, but it's greater than the total government expenditures. Right. And so if you looked at government expenditures in the, in the budgetary years, that they increased from a, around a little more than 4 trillion to 6.6 .6 trillion. Yeah. And in uh, both 2020 and 2021, and uh, at the same time, virtually all of that increase in expenditures was financed by borrowing from the Fed, which is to say when the government, federal government turns around and spends the funds in, by money creation. And so we had a 25% increase in the money supply, far greater than what the output of goods and services, uh, we would be able to expand the output. And in 2020, and then another 13%. So in total, you had a 40% increase in the money supply in uh, just a two-year period. And when you have that kind of increase, uh, it's definitely going to result in inflation. And uh, uh, not just inflation that we currently are experiencing, you know, both in 2021 and then again, continuing here in 2022, but it's going to last for another 12 to 18 months yeah. off out into the future. But the other thing that is happening is now the Fed has reversed its policy and has moved toward a, a restrictive kind of policy. And in all likelihood, that's going to throw the economy into a recession. So yeah. uh, it's another, you know, I sometimes make the statement that the biggest issue of our time is whether we're going to rely upon markets 
and the government essentially playing a stabilizing role of creating a stable legal and monetary environment for markets to work, or whether we're going to try to centrally plan the economy, that is to say, a politically directed economy. And what's happened here is we have a politically directed economy mm -hmm. in response to the, the pandemic, and it's resulted in the first excessive monetary expansion. And now that uh, as we try to bring that under control, it's going to throw the economy into a recession. So, Jim, unfortunately, uh, Paul Krugman appears to be more pundit than man now. Uh, but I, one of the responses given by him and others uh, is that this isn't money driven. And the reason it's not money driven is because in 2008, 2009, 2010, after the or during the Great Recession, the housing crisis, we printed a bunch of money and there wasn't inflation. And a lot of people mispredicted that. So can you uh, give us like what what's different about this money printing that it did lead to inflation? Well, the big thing that was different in is in the period, say, 20 uh, uh, 2008 through 2014, uh, we did have some increase in the government uh, uh, financed by uh, bond purchases by the Fed. But at the same time, the impact on the money supply was far less mm -hmm. than the current situation because the government turned right around and paid interest to banks in order to hold those funds. So those of you who taken an economics uh, class know that one of the methods of, of expansion of the money supply is the banks extending additional loans. Mm -hmm. But if they hold the money rather than extending additional loans, it will have uh, a much lesser impact on the money supply. And that's what happened in that period of uh, 2008 on through 2014 and indeed up to 2019. And the money supply increase in that period, whether you're looking at the narrow money supply, including primarily checking deposits and currency or a broader concept of money, including savings accounts, uh, was in uh, at, at, at its peak around 12 to 13 percent expansion annual rate. And uh, throughout the average of that uh, 09 to 14 period, the money supply average growth was around seven or eight percent. So uh, a, a smaller increase in the money supply mm -hmm. results in less inflation. Right. But when you double and triple the magnitude of it, it's going to result in higher rates of inflation. Yeah, right, right. So I've got a question, but before I get to it, I want to make sure for our listeners, when, when we're hearing the Fed finance, um, we've mentioned this before, listeners, but it, we don't print money like uh, Zimbabwe prints money. When the government wants to spend money, they don't actually run the printing presses to make money for themselves, to buy weapons or whatever. What they do is... The our government issues government bonds mm -hmm. and our other arm of the government, the Fed, purchases those bonds from them. And so there is money entering the system, which is I like to call the discrete printing press. It's yeah. a, it, but it is fundamentally different because yeah. now the one arm of the government still owes money back to the other arm of the government, whereas with the true printing press, it's just out the window and gone and, and there's no mechanism for it to come back. Uh, but what really happens is they just keep borrowing and they keep buying and, and we uh, end up having money come into the system. So that's when we use the words uh, the Fed financing the government spending, that's what's going on. And that leads me to my question, Jim, that it seems like the Fed is saying yes a little more often than maybe what they did in the past, certainly in Wayne Angel's day um, in the 80s. Uh, 
I don't think they'd be so quick to say yes. And I see this buildup over time where I was a bit surprised to learn that uh, 93 in the 93% range, or maybe it's even more um, of student loans are now held by the federal government. Whereas prior to that, they were held in private hands. Mm -hmm. Home loans is really where it started, where now we have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And then we had the 2008 financial crisis and the government took that debt under their own umbrella. And now we've got this, COVID happened and we need money and the Fed just seems easier to let that money out the door. And well, what do you think about that? Is well, that certainly that has been the case uh, in uh, since the Fed changed its operating procedures. And it, uh, quite a dramatic change that is often uh, overlooked or not fully understood that took place in October of 2008 when the Fed began paying commercial banks uh, interest on the funds that they held with the Fed yeah. rather than loaned out. Yeah. And so, I thought a lot of people, that was like almost a conspiracy. Like if people really knew that was going on, it seemed like they'd be mad. That well, they're, money, they're getting money, they're getting interest from the Fed, but that's not necessarily trickling to them directly. Well, I, and, I thought and we would be upset. It's a way, that. it's a kind of subsidy It is uh, yeah. to the banks. Now, when interest rates were relatively low, as they have been for the most part during this era where the Fed is using primarily this method of paying banks interest to hold the money. And the interest rates say were a half a percent or a quarter percent, uh, or maybe as much as one or one and a half percent that the Fed was paying on the deposits, that it was relatively small amounts of funds. But now the Fed has pushed that interest rate that it pays banks up to three and a quarter percent and uh, the projections are, uh, in fact, the Fed has more or less stated that they expect that to go up either uh, one full percent or one and a quarter percent uh, between now and the end of the year. And so we're going to be, uh, uh, the Fed is going to be paying around four and a half percent to banks to uh, hold these uh, bonds, which are basically the national debt. Uh, for the, the banks to hold those rather than extend the, the loans. And of course, the fact that they're holding them, that means the money supply doesn't increase as much. No. Now, the other thing that is a side effect of this uh, Fed's new operating procedure, and I say new, new since October of, of uh, 2008, is now the Fed is holding a much larger amount of that national debt. It was single digits, like about 8% of the national debt was held by the uh, uh, Federal Reserve System, the central bank in the United States uh, in 2007, 2008, uh, under the old operating procedure. But now that figure is up, in fact, in excess of 25%. So a very large amount of the outstanding government debt is actually being held by the Federal Reserve. And in addition to that, some large uh, other amount is held by commercial banks and the fed is actually paying the uh, commercial banks to hold those reserves rather than extend additional loans that, which would uh, result in this you know an, an even greater expansion of the money supply than what we've observed right well this looks like a good time for a break when we come back um i'd like you to comment on whether you think um the central banker who's now Jerome Powell, if there's some problems with their own self-interest versus serving the public interest, 
since you are our resident expert on public choice type matters, and we talk about that on this podcast quite a bit, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about that. We'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school events like PPE Fest. We just had 29 high school students here at Ottawa University for a night of uh, afternoon of uh, games and entertainment and just education at its best, learning about our PPE League. And we offered scholarships to these students to come to Ottawa University to be a part of the Gortney Institute and what we do with our competitions. Jim Gortney was our lead speaker and visited the campus and we got to talk about his Common Sense Economics book. If you're a high school student interested in earning some college credit, we have an online microeconomics class for motivated high school students seeking to earn early college credit. It's affordable, flexible, and layered with support. Our new online microeconomics course is optimized for dual credit and will increase your students' college readiness. Contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. Okay, and we're back here with our 1962 alum of Ottawa University, uh, Dr. Jim Gortney. He spent 50 years at Florida State, over 50 years, I should say, at Florida State University. And uh, him and his wife, Amy, still live in Tallahassee. And I think you told me that they'll probably have to drag you out of there, that you're not planning to move anytime soon. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so our cliffhanger, I, I wanted to think about... Um, you know, I'm going to pick on Jerome Powell a little bit, but we can we can think back to other places too. Where do you think there there there's any issue with their self interest um, versus what maybe serving the public interest? I, I look at this nine percent inflation and I think, wow, you know, like you said, this is kind of a predictable result. You know, how did we get here? Type of thing. What do you think on that? Well, uh, one element of economics is called public choice, and what essentially public choice economics is, is a branch of uh, uh, economic thought that applies the tools of economics to the political decision making process, to political decision makers in those elected to political office, but those who also who are involved in the bureaucracy, particularly at key levels, such as uh, members of the Board of Governors of the, of the Federal Reserve. And it really is, is pretty straightforward, at least the basics of it, is the, the idea that basic posture of economics, if incentives matter, they influence human behavior in a predictable way. Do you make something more costly? It means people will be less likely to choose it, that you... Uh, increase the benefits of it, they'll be more likely to choose it. So if, if something's more attractive to a, a political decision maker, it'll increase the likelihood that they will, in fact, choose it. So I think you can apply that uh, to the uh, both uh, the appointment process in terms of who's appointed to key political decision making uh, uh, administrative boards, such as the Federal Reserve, as well as to elected political officials themselves. And if you think of it in terms of Chairman Powell, Chairman Powell was appointed by uh, President Trump uh, in 2017, took office in, in 2018. And if you sort of fast forward to 2020 and think about hey, we need to have this big increase in uh, 
government expenditures related to the pandemic and to try and, and compensate people for costs that were imposed on them really by the government in the sense of a lot of businesses were shut down, schools were closed, uh, things of that, that sort. And the legislation in March of 2020 was to a major extent designed to compensate people for those costs imposed mm -hmm. on, on government. And I think that uh, would have certainly made sense. And if you look at it from the standpoint of a President Trump and Congress approving that legislation, uh, that's uh, not too surprising. Now, if you th then look in terms of how you're gonna finance it, yeah. Uh, that uh, certainly President Trump and members of Congress didn't want to increase taxes to finance it. They could have borrowed uh, from the general public, but that would uh, also have involved uh, uh, a greater marketing e effort, things of that sort. But a third option would be to, uh, to find and get the Federal Reserve to finance it. Yeah. And that's basically the uh, path that was chosen now, the Federal Reserve is, is mandated to focus on two goals, the two goals being price stability, the follow monetary policy that roughly keeps prices stable. And they consider stable prices sort of defined it, if you like, as, as 2% or less in terms of the amount of inflation. And that's kind of, you know, that's what the Fed had, had been targeting for the, the last decade, in fact, maybe, you know, probably longer than that, and actually done a pretty good job of, of achieving it. If you go back to sort of the mid 90s, that the inflation rate in the United States would have been pretty close to this 2% target and, mm -hmm. and often less than, you know, more like in the 1% or one and a half percent range. Yeah. So, uh, Against and the second uh, goal that the Fed is mandated to pursue is is full employment. Well, the economy was uh, recovering uh, nicely, and uh, by uh, the end of twenty, as we moved away from these closed uh, downs, shutdowns, mandated shutdowns, and on into twenty twenty one, the economy began to recover. But nonetheless, we had these big increases in government expenditures and and. Uh, uh, Chairman Powell, no doubt, would have been under considerable pressure to cooperate mm -hmm. first with the the uh, Trump administration. Now, one factor that would be important to his cooperation is the Fed chairman under current law is appointed by a new presidential administration in the first year of their their new term. So uh, 2017, it came up. It's going to come up again in 2021. It had come up uh, it previously in the first year of the second term of the Obama administration, 2013, that every four years, that's when the, the Fed chairman is appointed and they assume office then in uh, the early part of the, of the following year. So uh, the uh, Chairman Powell, no doubt, would one of the things that he would have in the back of his mind is I'd like to be reappointed. <laughs> kind of like my job. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so if he wants to re reappoint it, he needs to cooperate with the President Trump. And uh, of course, that's what he did in terms of the legislation, the large legislation in March and again in December. But then by uh, uh, the, uh, President Biden won the election. And so he's going to be the new president. 
And now Chairman Powell confronts the second choice. Should I uh, essentially play the role of accommodating to finance this big increase in expenditures in March of uh, 2021? Uh, via money creation, essentially the Fed buying the bonds from the uh, federal government. And again, he's got to think, hey, who's going to be reappointing me if I'm reappointed? Now it's going to be President Biden. <laughs> so so the benefits to him cooperating with the Biden administration, and, and maybe it, it might be a little too strong to say, throwing out the window the idea that, hey, our job is to pursue price stability. But that's really what he was mandated to do, right now. is to pursue price stability. But if he wants to be reappointed, that the thing to do is to uh, buy the bonds, finance the government increase in government expenditures in, in March, again, in March of, of 2021. And uh, that's what he did. And uh, from his standpoint, I guess it worked out. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, you, you know, you probably don't want to say, hey, we knew it would cause inflation. So maybe you might talk about something like transitory inflation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bring that word up at a convenient time. Yeah. I mean, that's in large part what public choice addresses, right, is the, there's, there's problems in government because we're always using other people's money. I remember the, uh, well, the government shut everybody down, so it seems reasonable that they should have to compensate those people. When we use yeah. the word compensate, what's really going on is that it's other people's money from somewhere, and now it's really my kids and my kids' grandkids with the deficit spending, and, and there's always just somebody else's money to spend, and that's a, that's a real problem with the lack of accountability on uh, some of this. Yeah. Uh, and it's not general. it's not crazy to think that this happens because we actually have historical cases where we know this has happened. Uh, Nixon famously pressuring the Fed at the time Burns. Uh, yes. we, ha we have those recorded conversations, uh, you know, and the, the of course, the question is, well, Nixon, a lot of his stuff was released because of the impeachment and everything. Uh, it would be interesting to see how many other presidents have conversations similar with their Fed chairs. Uh, and it also speaks to the fact that one of the common uh, defenses of the Fed recently has been well, this is just a 2% inflation target, which means sometimes we're going to go over it and sometimes we're going to go under it and, you know, we'll keep an average of 2%. But then you have to ask the question, it's like, well, when are we going to go under it? <laughs> when are we going to have less yeah. than 2% inflation? It seems like we are always, we're biased in the direction of uh, more than 2% inflation. So it, we, we're constantly overshooting the target, or at least when we uh, don't hit the target, we're going above it. At that point, you have to question, it's like, well, why are we biased in one direction? It turns out, uh, it aligns with incentives better to be uh, above two percent inflation than below it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and when you go above it, you reduce the credibility of it really being, hey, we want to keep inflation in that zero yeah. to two percent range. And then you go above it, and and uh, the first time maybe you know people are a little concerned about it, but then uh, as it happens more than once. Uh, yeah. On kind of continuous basis, uh, people, well, you know, maybe it's not all that big a deal. Well, it's essentially saying, hey, that target is not that rigid. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that has certainly come out of this is that the uh, uh, holding the Fed accountable uh, is becoming increasingly difficult. And I must say, I, I think the news media in the United States has really been soft. Oh, the yeah. Federal Reserve, but kind of acting as if, hey, you know, you just had this very difficult kind of situation. This inflation came about. Who, in fact, could have seen it come? Well, anybody who knows anything about the relationship between the money supply and the price level 
would have figured out that that five trillion dollars of additional money injected into the right. system was going to cause in inflation. a very quick way. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it, it's hard to believe that that uh, members of the Federal Reserve, including the chairman, did not know that the policies they were following were going to at least cause some inflation. Now, maybe they didn't think it would cause quite as much inflation sure. as it actually did. But uh, we need to come up with a better method of, of holding the Fed uh, accountable. New Zealand, you know, has a system where essentially the members of the their central bank board of governors are uh, required to resign if they have that inflation outside wow. of the range. Wow, that would be. Yeah. And I think that would be a good approach. I also say I don't do not think the idea of having the president appoint the the chairman of the board of governors uh, every four years at the beginning, pretty mm -hmm. much at the beginning of his new term is a good idea. Mm. What would be a better idea is let the board of governors elect their own chairman. Sure. Mm -hmm. And they don't need to elect that, uh, you know, in the year right after a presidential election. <laughs> right. So, right. Uh, but uh, that way you could still preserve the appointment part, but it would be emerging within the board that's right the, the members of the board rather than the president yeah. but but then there's no reason why the members of the board cannot elect their own chairman yeah and in fact it might the chairman is be of the federal reserve has become very powerful yeah. person and if he were appointed if, excuse me elected by the board of governors within their own within the board that would actually reduce the mm, power yeah. of the chairman relative to the other members of the board of yeah. governors you know, another thing you made me think about with the uh, Fed buying up these bonds and, and Jerome uh, possibly covering for the reappointment is that imagine a world where they didn't buy the bonds. The government still had to sell those bonds, right? Mm -hmm. And so right. now there'd be uh, excess um, demand for bonds, or I'm sorry, excess supply of bonds on the market driving up interest rates. Yes. And now everybody would say, oh, all these high interest rates, who's to blame? It's Biden, right? Because at that point, it wouldn't be Powell. It would be Biden. It would because be the political he, Yes. And so that, but now that all the more bolsters this idea that now it'll look like uh, Biden or uh, Powell did that to Biden. Biden's mm -hmm. getting some heat because of Powell's inaction, all the more reason to be easy with uh, buying it rather than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Now, Jim, I had a question for you, uh, and this is one that uh, when you have these conversations with economists, it ultimately comes up. We had between 2020 and 2022 about a 40% increase in the M2 money supply, and let's right. just use M2 for now. Right. Uh, everything else constant, that would mean we should have 40% higher price level eventually, right? Uh, that being said, that's if everything else is held constant. And so between 2020 and 2022, I think we've had like 15% inflation over those two years, uh, if you add up the annualized rates, it could be a little less than that, maybe 13. Uh, but that leaves another 25, 27% uh, increase in the money supply that's not reflecting in a changed price level. So do you think that's uh, going to output or people more likely to hold money? What's going on here? Well, you would have, I mean, historically, output in the United States has increased at an annual rate of about 3%. Mm -hmm. So we might expect that if, if we say increase the money supply 3% and increase the output by 3%, that the amount of money chasing the goods and services, if I can use that kind of term, mm -hmm. uh, would 
largely be unchanged, and we'd expect that to be associated with price stability. Right. A second factor that impacts the amount of money that people are, are willing to hold is what's happening to interest rates. Mm-hmm. And what happened to interest rates between uh, 2010 and, and 2020 is that they were declining throughout much of that period and relatively low. And when the interest rates are relatively low, the people don't have the the incentive to uh, be concerned about the uh, money balances that you have. To, people will be willing to hold larger money balances because the opportunity cost of holding money, even in currency form, for example, is less. Right. Because if you had it in some kind of a saving or investment interest that uh, investment, you wouldn't be earning that much interest anyway. So the velocity of money tends to decline a little bit. So that's another factor. So when you kind of take this 3% annual rate, plus the velocity, for example, declined during uh, 2010 to 2019 at an annual rate of about 2 to 3%. So -hmm. that's kind of, that that would essentially say, hey, you can have 5% growth rate in the money supply for free uh, that without having uh, inflationary kinds of factors. And then if you sort of think of, hey, well, suppose that we were at the top of the target, the 2%, well, that's say, well, maybe you could go as high as 7%. And that's kind of what we did during that that period. Now, in the current situation, so what I'm saying is that this 40% increase over a two-year period we wouldn't necessarily expect that it would result. I mean, that would be an average of roughly 20% a year to make the math yeah. easy. So we wouldn't expect that that would result in, in 15% inflation. That when you consider these, the, the growth of output and the growth of, of uh, uh, or the decline in, in, in velocity, that uh, probably more like 10% rather sure. than 15, which is, kind of uh, an annual rate of which we almost have have reached. Yeah. Uh, Now, I also think it's important to recognize that monetary policy, these changes in monetary policy work with the lag. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't all that much inflation during 2020. The first year that we had this big increase in the money supply, the prices didn't go up very much. But the second year, they went up a lot, and they're continuing to go up now into yeah. the third year that we're into. And because of this lag effect, mm-hmm. I feel sure that even if we, the economy, it's almost for sure, it's going to, it's going to slow down, that for a period of time, we're going to have what in the 1970s we called stagflation. Yeah. And that is you had a weak economy, but you also had rising prices. Mm-hmm. So we're likely to go through a, a period of, of, of that time. Yeah. Um, and I think that lag effect is what we're seeing right now with the, the Fed making some pretty bold moves of, of raising rates, but mm-hmm. yet inflation even creeped up a little bit more, right? Yeah. Because the, the putting the, raising those rates might not have their effects for another, whatever, four to six Well, months, and the so. initial impact of raising the rates is it's going to cause people to become more sensitive to the amount. It's going to increase the opportunity cost of holding money. Yeah. And, and people are going to try to cut back on their, their do more business if you like with a smaller amount of, of funds yeah so the the increase in the rates are, are likely to result to, in an increase in velocity initially which means that the impact of the fed's more restrictive policy is for a period of time 
that it's it's not going to be uh, quite as restrictive as, as it will be over a longer period yeah. of time. News blurb this morning was how existing home sales down 24 percent. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's not surprising yeah. because, of and course, the interest rates climbing. Yeah. The, the mortgage rate has gone up three yeah. percent to roughly seven percent. Yeah. So it's, it's more than doubled. And that yeah. means, you know, maybe people think, well, the does the interest rate really matter that much? Well, that means that <laughs> if you were, say, paying $1,200 a monthly payment on a mortgage, a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, that at 3%, now at 7%, that that uh, monthly payment is going to be around uh, uh, $2,200 yeah. in that range. Can so, jack it up pretty fast. Well, well, and that's one of those graphs that if you look on the, the Fred website, I think the graphs, it's a shocking graph is the Fed's holding of mortgage-backed securities too. Yeah. And so we've got this precarious position now where the Fed has spent a lot of money uh, basically influencing the demands, increasing the demands in the market for mortgages, mm-hmm. uh, mortgage-backed securities, but indirectly for mortgages, mm-hmm. uh, making banks more likely to give out more mortgages because they can bundle them into the securities. Mm-hmm. So that whole market has this yeah. whole propped up no, feature, but now that now the Fed yeah. is starting to let off the gas, they're not selling them, but they're they're not increasing their holdings as much the last few months. Right. And that, so, more, that rate then jumps up pretty rapidly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now this combination, I don't like this trio that we've created of <laughs> home loans, student loans, and now let's call them COVID loans. Uh, the feds, uh, the government's just got, there's a lot of government controlled debt out there. Yeah. So, yeah. When Wayne Angel uh, began his term in the Board of Governors uh, in uh, 1986, uh, I was at Florida State University and we had Dr. Angel down to speak to uh, an economics club, uh, North Florida Economics Club. <laughs> and he made the statement that in terms of evaluating his performance, people should look to see what had happened to the price level in the next eight to 10 years during his tenure on the Board of Governors. And if he had been successful, that basically the price level would be very similar to uh, uh, what it was uh, when he left office, left mm-hmm. the Board of Governors is what it was when yeah. he initially went on. So that's the criteria and he gets an A for that, by and the way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. As far as and his and, and uh, if you wanted to apply that to the current Fed members, <laughs> they, they essentially would get an F for, yes, for yeah. their uh, yeah. uh, failure to maintain price stability during right. their, their tenure of office. Yeah, that's almost hard to believe. So mm-hmm. we'll see what the the next few years brings up and if, uh, if they toughen up or, or not. I, mm-hmm. And I think there's enough variables that... You, you just don't know. It's it's not quite as simple as contracting things. And now with their extra tools of interest on reserves too, it just gives that extra uncertainty, right? Because yeah. now they can, let's say, gobble up the bonds, but yet raise up the interest rates on reserves. And so they've got, and, and they do that intentionally. I think there's enough enough tools that they can keep. Uh, well, they're keep using the combination guessing. of the amount of, of bonds that they, they buy. Yep. And if they want to, be more expansionary, they would buy more. If they wanted to be more restrictive, they w- would buy less. Yep. But you can't just look at that. No, you can't look because at Because you've got yeah. the in- this interest rate effect because right. they're also setting really an interest rate floor directly mm-hmm. by the deposits that they, yep. the amount they pay the bank. If the bank can earn, let's say, 4.5% interest, as we expect by the end of the year, that they're going to be able to, to earn by just holding deposits with the 
Federal Reserve, they're not going to loan money to you and I right. for less than four and a half percent. Right. Because they can earn four and a half percent from the Fed. Yeah. yeah. Risk free too. Exactly. Well, yeah. well, yeah. well yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in the short run, uh, the, the Fed is actually less of a risk than we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least, yeah. At least right now, that's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, this looks like a great place to wrap up, uh, Jim. Uh, both Jim and Amy, we appreciate both of you being here on campus, and we're looking forward to this event that we have uh, this evening. We're bringing in uh, thirty-two high school students to participate in our. Uh, philosophy, politics, and economics event, and that event uh, ultimately ends with Jim Gortney uh, talking at the dinner, um, as well as these high school students are going to sit down with Jim and talk about his common sense economics. They will have come uh, and read parts of that book ahead of time, and so I think it's just going to be a great experience for them to get to speak with you. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. All great right. to be back at Ottawa. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us. Otherwise, please uh, pass this along to your friends and family if they think they might like to listen to this podcast and other ones. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Mm -hmm.